0: Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? (laughs) This is First
1: Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's
2: answer.
0: Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right
3: to make that choice.
2: The Steamy, a laudable production for The Scotsman. Hello and welcome back to The Steamy, The Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matchett and I am the Deputy Political Editor at The Scotsman. Welcome back to STEAMy. It's been a long time since we were around. It's been the summer recess. It's been the death of Her Majesty the Queen that's delayed us from coming back, but we're delighted to have you back. Just want to tell you at home about some changes that we're going to make to the STEAMy over the coming weeks. We are hoping that we will have an interview with someone in the world of Scottish politics every week for you going forward. And also we will look at the top stories of the day. With me today, but in a very nice area of the Scottish Parliament, Alistair Grant, our political editor, is here. Alistair, how are you?
3: Not too bad. How's it going?
2: Battling on just about. It's been a busy week of politics since the Conservatives effectively collapsed the economy.
3: (laughs) It has. It's been one of those weeks that just kind of ages you by about 100 years. Absolutely. If you're in politics or journalism. Particularly
2: given the fact that with the Queen dying and that basically putting a stop to politics, it was basically flat to the floor on the accelerator as soon as we got back to it, wasn't it?
3: It was, it was. I mean, obviously that kind of put a pause in politics. Both parliaments, north and south of the border, went into you know weren't sitting essentially. Uh, and then we came back and obviously there's a big announcement on energy bills. And then obviously, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into, uh, quasi-quarting the Chancellor announced his growth plan, which, like you say, has, has caused a bit of a meltdown in the markets. Absolutely.
2: And Alistair, you're wearing a tie today, which you don't normally do because you are on the BBC earlier. So I think you're best placed to take us through what Quasi Quarting <laughs> announced and the economic fallout.
3: Yeah, so this is a series of measures. Basically, I suppose the, the aim of it is to kickstart growth in the economy, they would say. So the kind of big announcements, the big surprise was an income tax. So uh, Quasi Quartang announced that they would abolish the top rate of income tax for those earning £150,000 or more, and that they would cut the basic rate from 20 to 19p in the pound. They bring that planned cut forward by a year. So these, these measures were going to come in from April next year. Okay. Uh, and this applied south of the border. Obviously, income tax rates and bans are devolved in Scotland. And there's a lot of reporting on the back of this as to you know, whether Scotland would follow suit. It would also leave a huge income tax gap between Uh, earners north and south of the border, particularly if they're in that kind of higher rate of tax, the additional rate or top rate in Scotland. But it also, because I think primarily because the markets weren't, there wasn't an announcement as to how this was going to be funded. Essentially, the funding of it was unclear. The markets got spooked. The pound plummeted in value. Uh, There was an extraordinary intervention from the IMF. The Bank of England then announced that it was going to try and stabilise the situation by buying up essentially kind of tens of millions of pounds of government bonds, government debt. And it's basically been a kind of self-inflicted situation. I mean, also we have huge global volatility at the moment. We all know about the cost of living crisis. But this aspect of it has been entirely self-inflicted. It's completely extraordinary. Uh, and there's a lot of question marks about where Liz Truss was. The prime minister seemed to be a bit AWOL for a while. And then on the day we're recording, which is Thursday, Liz Truss did a round of interviews on kind of BBC local radio and I'm not sure, I mean, maybe I'm being unfair to her if she thought it was going to be perhaps easier than a national interview, but it certainly wasn't. There was lots of tough questions, very specific local questions, and things like fracking, very important to local areas, but also just questions on the, the state of the economy in general. And I think you could see that this Trust, certainly from what I heard, didn't provide very reassuring answers, to be honest. So, yeah, it's a bit of a a bit of a mess.
2: Yeah, we won't, we won't go into the kind of in-depth financial <laughs> manoeuvres for the sole sort of fact that I don't think either of us really fully understand what a <laughs> <laughs> bond guilt yield is or any of that. Um, but let, I think let's talk about the impact of the, the whole, you know, mini-budget, whatever you want to call it, on the Scottish government the First Minister, as you, as you mentioned, has, has got a decision to make coming up when it comes to taxation. Um, but she's been pretty clear, she was clear in FMQs today, you know, that we're not going to follow what's happened in London. But the, the big question mark still remains over the, the basic, um, the starter in, and the intermediate tax rates for Scots. That's a slightly different situation to the simple basic tax rate of 20% at the minute down south. We have an 18, a 19 and a 21% tax band system in Scotland. So there's a big question mark there what the government do. It's going to cost them money regardless of what they do. Yes,
3: yeah, so you're right. So Nicola Sturgeon today, during First Minister's questions, made it quite clear that she's not going to follow the tax cuts for the wealthy, I think she said, "It's mm-hmm. language she's used in the past. You know, they're quite clear that top rate of tax for the, those kind of high earners, they're not going to mirror that. To be honest, I think it'd be politically strange if the SNP did. It goes against quite a lot of what they, certainly the rhetoric is around these things. They often use the phrase that they have a progressive tax system. That's, you know, arguably not progressive.
2: They like that line, don't they, that that, that no one pays more tax, or half of Scots pay less tax in Scotland than they would if they lived in the UK. It's something
3: like 51%, yeah. Yeah. It's a small amount of tax. But yeah, so they're not going to mirror that tax cut for high earners. I think there is a question mark over whether they mirror the basic rate cut or come to some kind of halfway house. UK government was very quick after the growth plan announcement to trumpet the fact that this meant that, through the Barnett formula which kind of governs funding that comes from central UK government to devolved governments that their tax cutting measures essentially and it sounds almost a bit counterintuitive meant there was about more than six hundred million pounds extra coming to the Scottish government coming to Scotland in funding and essentially there was in the immediate aftermath of the the mini budget there was a lot of conversation about whether the government used that the Scottish government used that to mirror the tax cuts or put it into something else. You know, it's £600 million over three years, we should say. I think it's three years, yeah. I think if they they made changes... Sorry, it's getting very complicated. If they made changes to the basic rate, that would take money out of that. If they made changes to, you know, it's called stamp duty down south. It's land and building transaction tax up here. It'll be BT. BT. Is it? LBTT. LBTT, that's it, yeah. <laughs> um, We're it made... across the detail here on the steaming <laughs> Confusing myself here. If they made changes to that, that takes money out of that as well. Mm. So and I think there's a lot of, I actually saw a lot of commentary on social media basically about people kind of not happy with the fact that the Scottish media had concentrated in this tax disparity north and south of the border considering there's been this massive financial fallout and they would say the real story is the fact that the market clearly didn't trust the mini budget at all, didn't trust the announcements. It totally spooked them. And we've had this kind of, you know, plummeting meltdown in the pound since then. I think that's a fair point, but I would say that things can be simultaneously true. It can be true that this mini-budget has had a massive economic fallout that, you know, I think it's safe to say Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng didn't see coming. But it's also true that it is difficult or it creates difficult questions for the Scottish government if you have a tax disparity north and south of the border in terms of... You know, we always talk about whether high earners could move south to try and cut their tax or even in terms of trying to persuade people to move to Scotland and get high earners to move to Scotland because even though there's such a small amount of people who pay that top rate of income tax, you know, when you're looking at population-wide, the amount they pay is disproportionately high. So they do have an impact on your overall, overall tax take. So you do have to be concerned about this. And I thought it was interesting in the radio interviews that John Swinney the Deputy First Minister, who's the Acting Finance Secretary, uh, while Kate Forbes is on maternity leave. And he was doing radio interviews in the days after. And we're saying that it's something they have to they have to look at, they have to think about, they have to take into account. So I think both of those things can be true. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of difficult things the Scottish Government has to grapple with, even just in terms of you know the impact on their, their overall budget. And I think one of the things as well that we don't know yet is that there is some speculation that the UK government's going to have to U-turn or announce a swathe of spending cuts just to try and balance the books when it comes to this. So if they do end up U-turning when they have, I think they call it the medium-term fiscal plan that they outline on the 23rd of November, which is when we'll also get those OBR economic forecasts, if they do U-turn in any of this, that throws another spanner in the works. So it's just entirely up in the air and it's such a, it's a, an extremely complicated mess.
2: Absolutely. And as you mentioned, I think we're talking about this in the, in the kind of situation where the Scottish government finances are already under huge strain, you know, before any of this happened on Friday. You know, we were already looking at an emergency budget review, which was looking at significant cuts to spending... And a cut to basic starter and intermediate, I think the, the Fraser-Valander Institute suggested that would cost £200 million per year. A cut to the top rate and all of the basic rate would cost around £400 million a year. And this neatly brings us on to the second story we want to bring on, which is rising public expenditure made more difficult by the current situation. And as a slight tangent, we're obviously talking about the ferries this week, which Uh, Yesterday, Wednesday for you listening at home, uh, we had an announcement of £84 million more for the two ferries that are now even more delayed. To give an instructive example of the pressure on the Scottish Government budget, of things that they didn't maybe know about six months ago.
3: It is, yeah. I mean, do we want to go into ferries at the moment? Just go. Yeah, should we just do it?
2: It's a big story, isn't it? The, the ferry. I mean, the, I would recommend anyone listening to watch the BBC disclosure documentary earlier this week. On, um, they titled it "The Great Ferries Scandal." We in the Scotsman have called it "The Ferries Fiasco" for for years. I don't think anybody at home listening won't know about the two ferries, the whole 801 and 802.
3: I can give a brief recap if give they us want. <laughs> yes yeah, So these are people. I'm sure will be aware of this story, yeah. but it's the two CalMac ferries that are being built at Ferguson Marine in Port Glasgow. Yeah last commercial shipyard in the Clyde. The contract was awarded to Fergus Marine for these two ferries that are going to serve Calmac routes on the west coast of Scotland. And they're now massively over budget, extremely late. Uh, I think one of them is about six years late now. And it's just been an ongoing saga in Scottish politics, essentially. And like you say, there is this BBC documentary, which I do thoroughly recommend watching a couple of days ago. And it basically amassed evidence that this procurement process could potentially have been rigged. I mean, it Essentially, Ferguson Marine had access to a 400-and-something page document. I think Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross referred to it as a cheat sheet in FMQs today. There's a document kind of all the specifications of these ferries, and none of the other bidders had access to this document. Ferguson Marine was also allowed to change its design. It was allowed to change the price of it. It had an in-person meeting that other bidders didn't have. I think as Douglas Ross said, you know, someone looking at this from the outside, that doesn't seem like a fair process. So there's very serious questions to answer there. And I think there's a lot of frustration in general about the transparency of this. I mean, we're like you say, we've been talking about this for a long time. Listeners are probably very aware of it, potentially quite bored of it. Um, And yet there's still more aspects of it coming out. There's still kind of more details about it coming out. And it potentially, you know, it's just it's becoming pretty ridiculous, to be honest.
2: Yeah, and the, the the documentary in particular focuses, you say, on the you know 424 page cheat sheet that apparently SeaMall ended up in the hands of uh, sorry Ferguson Marines, you know, lead bid maker for for this, and that's a problem because it was put together by CalMac, who you know are buying ultimately operating these ferries. It was a, as you say, on the face of it, a significant you know advantage for the yard. The question, of course, here is conspiracy or cockup, isn't it? It's whether or not the government had a you know a hand on the shoulder of c Mal, who were a ferry procurement body, you know, pushing them towards Ferguson Marine, who, for those who don't know, at the time had been rescued by Jim McCall, who was a friend of the SNP at the time. He was arguably driven towards rescuing you know Ferguson by the then First Minister Alex Salmond. The announcement for the rescue of Ferguson Marine was in the middle of the independence referendum campaign in 2014. It was a big scoop. It was on the front page of the Daily Record the day Alex Salmond guest edited the paper. So there is the question, isn't there, about the potential political influence. And that is the key question we don't know any answer to quite yet.
3: Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of unanswered questions. And you're right, conspiracy or cock-up is kind of one of the major ones. Um, And There's just a lot of, yeah, a lot of questions that need, need firm answers. And I think, uh, I think Nicola Sturgeon it came up in FMQ today, like I said, was raised by the Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross, uh, and I think Nicola Sturgeon struggled to did, deal yeah. with it in a way. She kind of tried to kind of put the issue on to Douglas Ross, having changed his story a little bit in terms of what he was concerned about. That seemed a bit weak, considering the overall questions that need to be answered here. Um, I think there is a, as I say, questions about transparency. And I think you could tell how difficult she found it by the fact it took her a full 10 minutes to bring up the mess down south and throw that back at Douglas Ross, uh, which I think if it was a more comfortable issue for her, she would have done a lot sooner. So yeah, I just think it's, what is there to say other than that it's completely ridiculous? And the,
2: the problem for her in in her responses today to Douglas Ross, you know, Douglas Ross brought up the, the, the BBC documentary and all of those aspects. And the FM's response was, well, you know, for the last six months, you've been telling me that we forced through the contract, you know, against the wishes of of C-Mail in favour of FML. You know, how could it possibly be that CMAL are now rigged the whole process in favour of FMAL? Of course, the problem is for the first minister that it is possible for it to both be true that FML received preferential treatment during that procurement process, and then CMAL didn't want to give it to them when it came to the point of the contract award.
3: Yeah, and the other aspect of this is that Scottish Parliament committees have looked at this before. Senior figures have come before them and said things that turned out later not to be true, mm-hmm. or at least not to be entirely true. And I think it was questions over whether, you know, those answers were given, in what context those answers were given, essentially. And I think one of the things that I found most frustrating watching that BBC documentary was the fact that senior people in CMAL and also CalMac, to be honest, I don't think CalMac even gave them a statement, let alone an interview, which I just think is... I mean, CalMac are obviously the operator, they're not procuring these ferries as such, but there are wider issues across the ferry network that, you know, are caused by the the ageing fleet that hasn't been replaced. And I think CalMac really needs to, you know, have a public profile coming out and explaining these things to people, answering questions. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate for them to just completely refuse to engage in a piece of investigative journalism like that. Nicholas
2: Sturgeon repeatedly says on this topic and many others that she takes ultimate responsibility for the mistakes made for the you know the the machinations of government what do you think responsibility taking responsibility actually looks like on the topic of these two ferries because at the minute we have Keith Brown who was at the time infrastructures cabinet secretary obviously John Swinney and Nicholas Sturgeon and then you have the useful fall guy in Derek Mackay, you know, now disgraced, out of parliament, no longer in government. Is he the only one that they can blame and they can just lay it on him? Or do you think that one of the three, you know, all senior figures in the SNP and in the government need to take some responsibility for it?
3: Yeah, it's it, it's interesting in terms of, yeah, I mean, it's something that government ministers always say, you know, the buck stops with me, which I think is the phrase that Nicholas Sturgeon used. But then on the other hand, they're also arguing that they weren't involved in the procurement process. They haven't had sight of these documents. I mean, I think the phrase that Nicola Sturgeon used today was that as far as ministers are concerned, they've not seen any evidence of impropriety. Um, but she also made the point that they haven't seen these documents. So, I mean, Audit Scotland, I think, are looking at this again. So I think they said they're looking at the substance of the allegations made in the BBC documentary. And I think that's promising. There needs to be, in some way, shape or form, we need to get to the bottom of this. Uh, and I think until you've done that, it can be hard to say in terms of what what should happen to ministers or how, how much. Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer.
2: It's going to run and run and run. Now we go to Alex Brown, who attended the Labour conference this week, where he spoke to Edinburgh South MP Ian Murray, who shared his penchant for some Labour merchandise. He also spoke with leader of the Scottish Labour Party Anas Sawa whilst battling with attendees looking for selfies and to shake hands with the leader which I'm sure Anas will have been delighted with.
1: Hello and welcome to the Scotsman's podcast my name is Alexander Brown the paper's Westminster correspondent and I'm here in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference where I'm very lucky to join by the party's Shadow Scotland secretary, Ian Murray. How's it going?
4: Yeah. Things are great, yeah. It's a very upbeat conference, very professional, ready for government, I think. Ready for government. And when is that government going to start, do we think? Well, we'd like a general election tomorrow, but uh, that's in the hands of the prime minister. But I think the country's ready for a general election, ready for a change of government, and Labour are ready to deliver.
1: I mean, that sounds like quite a big mood, uh, and, a, and I would say a vibe shift. From years gone past, I and mean, how does this conference feel compared to maybe last year, or even, do I say, the years before? Right? I would suspect you perhaps are not as happy as you seem to be now.
4: Well, I mean, look, the party's changed. Keir, when he came in in, in April two thousand twenty, said he was going to change the party. He has changed the party. He's fed up with the party, as we all are, being a protest movement, and we have to be a serious party of government. He did that last year by changing. The party's constitution, which is all very boring, but has a real effect. And now we're in a position whereby we're laying out some really good policies. We're showing clear water between us and the government, and we're we're ready to govern. And I think the professionalism, the busyness, the upbeat nature of this conference is fantastic, and I think it's there for everyone to see. I think some of the criticism that comes from the other side on that is that
1: it might, there isn't enough clear blue water. Some will on the left would say the party has
4: not, doesn't you know, making itself distinct enough. Do you think party is being bold enough in its vision? Well, I think it's being very bold in its vision, and you'll hear that from Keir Starmer's speech. I'd just encourage everyone to go back and listen to it or read it, and you'll see some pretty bold policies in there. But look, we're living through a cost-of-living crisis that hasn't been as serious in generation after generation. We've seen a government who have decided they will reward the rich and hammer the poor and not dealing with the big issues in the country. So we're trying to respond to that with policies that show that we can deal with the cost of living crisis and with a team, a front bench team and a Prime Minister awaiting Keir Starmer that will be credible, that has integrity and will be doing everything we possibly can in government to do as much as we can for working people (laughs) right across this country. That's what it's about. And I know there's frustrations over policies. There always is frustrations over policies. But this is about us being ready for government and responding to the public.
1: So, uh, on a slightly different note, we are currently in the Exhibition Hall, at conference, uh, which is filled with things like, you know, parcel falls and charities and groups, you know, uh, Better Britain and Campaigners, Fire Brigades Union, if you guys coming here much do you do you mingle what, what are your highlights when you come to these things
4: yeah they're great because it's everyone's showing off what they do best there's some some fantastic scottish projects the acorn project and there was a big announcement from rachel reeves uh, on monday that said that we would be funding the acorn project so the scottish cluster is going to be funded if the next labour government and um, there's people here from uh, city fibre there's people here showing us hydrogen electric buses i mean it's just got a really good feel about it and all these ideas we should be harnessing right across the country because one of the key messages for me at conference is that what we need to do is we need to rebalance our economy. The reason our economy is imbalanced across the UK is because we've concentrated the power, the resources and the wealth in too few areas. We need to unleash the talents of everywhere and if you look around these conference halls of what people are demonstrating and showing and selling this week, uh, you can see there's lots of ideas from every corner of this country we need to be unleashing that and capitalising on it.
1: So obviously you're here for work, uh, dare I say. What would you Some say? Play. Some play. Some play. Well, that's the thing. Conference, uh, for all the policies, also, is conference fun? And if you were a Labour member, what, you know, what would your pitch be to them to say, you know, this is worth coming to, you can have your say in democracy? Is it worth coming to?
4: Well, of course it is, because you get to engage. I mean, I was engaging with a disability charity this morning. We've actually developed a campaign that we'll do uh, together. You're seeing policies, you're seeing shadow cabinet members, you'll be you're able to engage with colleagues, with friends, with constituency parties, with organisations, with trade unions. It's a great place for everyone to come uh, together. We're just walking past a hydrogen zone which is demonstrating hydrogen boilers, for example, so uh, of course it's worth coming here. Yes, it's serious. Yes, it's about policy. Yes, it's about party democracy. Yes, it's about party rules. Yes, it's about showcasing the party to the public, but this is also about bringing people together uh, socially as well. and People with similar views can mingle and, and chat and have ideas of each other.
1: And we've just gone past the Labour shop store. Which has a few uh, delights. Have you? Uh, would you be? There's a socket to the Tories option. Would you buy sock? Say socket to the Tories. Or do you have friends who don't want i am a I'm a Labour gain baby grow?
4: You're, 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 uh, you're asking a Scotsman to spend money at a conference. You know, that's not going to happen unless they're giving stuff away for free. Or there are a lot of freebies. There's, there's a 50% free off section. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are the kind of things that people buy. The merchandise is always quite, quite nice and quite fun. I do like the baby grows. I remember when uh, my two-year-old was born, there was a baby ghost given to me by a friend from Leader of the House, which I thought was quite nice. So yeah, these things are great. And it's just, a, again, another... Thing for people to go out campaigning and we all like the Labour hoodies when we're out campaigning and the Labour tote bags and all the rest of it, properly branded up.
1: I'm off to go and buy some socks. Ian Murray, thank you so much for your time. Cheers. I'm now here with the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. Thank you so awesome. much, thank you, thank, thank, you, you, so right thank, you. thank <laughs> you. Sorry about that, Alex. How often has that happened to you uh, since you've been here? How many pictures have you taken? Quite a lot, actually, but... Um, nothing wrong with that, is there? No, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just interesting. Like, is it, is it, <laughs> is it so weird for people, you know, as a as a politician, that people aren't just you know wanting you to deliver change? They also want pictures of you. Does that happen outside of Labour conference?
0: It do, it does actually. It happens in um, it happens in some strange, weird, and wonderful places sometimes yeah, in, as well. Uh, when I'm out and about with the uh, with the kids, people are very kind, very very polite. And I think so often uh, we think about or talk about politics being angry and divisive and abusive, but actually fundamentally most people, of course at Labour Party conference, uh, but also outside the Labour Party conference, most people are thoroughly decent, good people who want to have a positive conversation rather than express the anger and hate we often see online. You say about it being less divisive. I think this conference feels less divisive than it has in
1: previous years. Does it feel a bit more relaxed to you? Are you you more chill this year? Um, um, Or are you still secretly brewing for a fight?
0: Look, I'm... (laughs) Look, like, I'm, I'm a naturally agitated uh, person, um, but actually a lot, more, a lot more chilled. And I think the interesting thing is I know some journalists have been saying that conferences, uh, this conference is, is boring in comparison to previous conferences. I would say serious compared to other conferences. And I think the reason for that is, I think the Labour Party's grown up. I think the Labour Party's serious again. I think the Labour Party wants to win again. And I think Labour Party is ready to lead again. And our challenge now between now and the next general election is, of course, let's expose the failures of the Tories, why they deserve to lose, but also let's now set out why Labour deserves to win. And I think if we do that, not only can Labour win the next general election, but I think Labour will win the next general election. And Scotland's going to play its part by getting us over the winning line. And how? I mean, how many seats are we talking here? Is
1: that something we're put a number on yet, or is it just you know we'll be doing better in Scotland? I'll
4: Look, wait and I've, see. I'm
0: not I'm not put a set uh, number on it, but what I'm determined is that we make significant gains uh, in this election campaign. It's coming up in the general election, uh, and I want us to be as ambitious uh, as we as we can be. I generally believe the next election, uh, there is no route to a Labour government that doesn't go through Scotland. And Scotland is not going to stop us having a Labour government across the UK. I genuinely believe Scotland is going to help us deliver that Labour government across the UK and, as I say, win the seats in Scotland and get us over the winning line.
2: Let's look forward to next week in parliamentary terms which is going to be another busy week it's the week before smp conference they're going to want a big announcement and it appears that what they're going to try and do is push through this emergency rent freeze to help with the cost of living before msps go off to aberdeen for the smp conference it's going to be pushed through in three days tuesday wednesday thursday It's going to go from stage one to stage three and um, but the details key isn't it in this rent freeze
3: It is key. And I think when this came up again today, next Sturgeon was kind of saying, you know, it's an emergency piece of legislation. It has to be done fast to have an impact. I think there is merit in that argument. You know, a full legislative process can take too long. But it is, I mean, the detail is key and it's such a complicated piece of legislation. You're also, you know, it's going to have a a knock-on impact in the housing market. Which I think is a concern that a lot of outside bodies have raised. Landlords, you know, arguably, somewhat predictably, don't like it in terms of their the organisation that represents them, but yeah, it's going to be rushed through. I think there there was concerns, I can't remember who raised it at FMQs actually, was it Liz Smith? Yeah, yeah. 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 just about the speed of this and the kind of lack of scrutiny that that involves.
2: And concerns that other stakeholders other than MSPs have seen it, seen this bill ahead of time and, you know, MSPs are the ones who are actually given little to no time to scrutinise it while, you know, people with vested
3: interests potentially have more time. Yeah, I was interested in that.
2: Uh, It sounded to me as well, you know, we spoke, we have a weekly briefing with the First Minister's official spokesperson every FMQs and even he couldn't say who those people would be or whether it had taken place. And that's questionable when it's something as important as a rent freeze and it impacts many, many people's lives and finances.
3: Yeah, something you feel strongly about yourself? I do
2: feel strongly about it. I mean, it's it's the big questions on the rent freeze are kind of, particularly now following the mini budget and the impact on interest rates, you know, we're likely to see a big interest rates rise from the Bank of England, which will push up the, the cost of, you know, a mortgage. A mortgage I do not have. Um, for full disclosure, I am a renter in Edinburgh. So a rent freeze has to protect both the renter from... High rent rises during a cost of living crisis. But it also has to bear in mind that once we get to April or May, and that temporary, and Nicola Sturgeon's been very keen to emphasize it's temporary, once that temporary freeze is over, there has to be something in the legislation to protect renters then. You know, rent can be raised once a year under the legislation. I had mine raised in June. You know, by next June, I will have not had the benefit of a rent freeze and this, I won't be alone in this and could end up with a significant hit to my rent next year because of the price of a mortgage, of the, of the mortgage payments. It's a difficult question. It's not as simple as people make out. And I think that the current economic circumstances have made it a tougher one for the s to answer. So it'll be very, very interesting to see what happens next week. And we'll obviously keep you up to date on all of it. It was great to hear from Alex at Labour Conference. I hope he enjoyed his time there. I know he's off to Conservative Conference this weekend as well to enjoy the presumably chaotic scenes. Um, Alistair, thank you very much for joining us as always. Thanks. We will be back next week. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.